talk, we start six months out. So for us to try to plan and do things six months out is really tricky. Uh, we typically schedule book tours and event, in-person events. We submit to book festivals and conferences. And at, in March and April, we were still thinking like, Ugh, it'll be all done by August. We got it, it's fine. It's not gonna be done. Breaking news tonight, the coronavirus forcing millions more Americans into virtual lockdown. Our country wasn't built to be shut down. This is not a country that was built for this. It was not built to be shut down. America will again and soon be open for business. Uh, very soon. A lot sooner than uh, three or four months. It's There's a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of fear. Um, there's a lot of, you know, wondering if you're risking your life by going to work. Welcome to Restarting America. In this episode, Jeremy talks to Dana Kay, an entrepreneur, about how she has been operating and starting new businesses during the coronavirus pandemic. Make sure to like and subscribe and visit us at our website, restarting-america.com. And now to Jeremy's conversation with Dana. Welcome to Restarting America. I'm Jeremy Greenberg, and I'm excited to speak with Dana Kay. Dana is a veteran publicist, brand manager, and entrepreneur. In 2009, Kay founded Kay Publicity Inc., a boutique PR agency specializing in publishing and entertainment. Kay is also the author of Your Book, Your Brand, The Step-by-Step -Step Guide to Launching Your Book and Boosting Your Sales, and the co-founder of soon-to-be-released Boutique Stock Photography, a curated library of stock photos with a focus on representation and equity. Thank you, Dana, for being here today. I'm excited to talk with you. So to start off, will you just tell us about yourself? Sure, so I am a lifelong Chicagoan, uh, born and raised, and I began my business in 2009. We had, as some of you may remember, some of us are having deja vu, 2008 brought a big recession, and I was in publishing and books. I was a book critic for the Chicago Sun-Times and for Time Out Chicago. And authors and publishers were seeing the writing on the wall that people were not spending as much, people were getting laid off, there wasn't as much, let's say, like disposable income. Some of us may be feeling this way now. And to get someone to buy a $25 hardcover on an author they have never heard of was going to be a problem. And at the time I was writing, I also saw that the media industry was changing, that newspapers were filing for bankruptcy and going out of business. And so I knew that my career stability was minimal. And so I had to think about what do I want to do next and how do I want to pivot? And I realized that what I loved most about being a book critic was telling people what to read. I loved playing matchmaker. You know, my wife will tell you, don't ask her for book recommendations at a dinner party because she'll just rattle off a bunch of things. And ask a lot of probing questions to like get the best recommendation I can, to give you the best recommendation I can. So I really loved telling people what to read. So I thought, okay, publicity or marketing, something in publishing would be a good fit. So I started looking for jobs. But as I told you, I'm a lifelong Chicagoan and publishing is predominantly in New York. I had no desire to move to New York. Love to visit when we can, not now, um, but I didn't want to move. And so I started thinking like, okay, well, how could I do this? It looks like I'm probably gonna just have to do this myself. 
And at the time, because I was a book critic, I was involved in the writing community and I was speaking at a panel, on a panel at a conference. And I was speaking with a debut author who I had known from the local writing community, Jamie Frevoletti. And her debut was, her debut book was coming out that May, this was in February of 2009. And we were discussing the same thing. People aren't gonna spend $26 on a hardcover if they hadn't heard of you. It's going to be a lot more difficult to promote these books. And so I started telling her some ideas I had. Um, she was saying that she was looking for an outside publicist as someone who had dealt with publicists because they would pitch me, their clients. I was telling her, okay, look for this, make sure they follow up, make sure they don't send you glitter bombs, they're so annoying, like you know, giving her all the things to look for in a publicist. She finally was just like, you have these ideas, you have strong opinions, can you just do it? And so I love that. that's kind of how it was born. It was like, you know, this was, you know, we had been drinking wine. So the following day we went and got breakfast and we hashed out a plan for her book. And we did some really cool things that her publisher wasn't doing. Um, she was published by HarperCollins. They supported her fully. They had her at the time, it was a big deal. They had a radio tour and they sent out to book critics and all these things. But I, as someone who was active in the online space, saw the potential for blogs, which I know it sounds silly now, but like at the time, book blog wasn't a thing. I had to explain to publishers what a book blogger was. I'd explain to them what Twitter was because Twitter launched, I think 2007 is when Twitter launched. And so no one knew the term follow wasn't in the zeitgeist. Like no one knew. And I said, oh, there's people who follow you. Like, oh, that's so creepy. Mm -hmm. And so we were doing a lot of these new ideas and reaching out to these new mediums that the publishers couldn't support. And that is what I attributed to the success of that book so early on. And so what do you do on social media or the following, like expand on that a little bit. Well, so we did some different things. Um, we had, we had a couple of different things that we did. One of the things we did was we partnered, her, her book is a thriller featuring Emma Caldridge, who is an ultra marathon runner. And so we partnered with Segoy Running Apparel to sponsor a book trailer. So we had a book trailer, which is like a preview for the book. And she, the, there's Segoy that she, Jamie, who was starred in it, uh, was wearing Segoy running apparel. And we did a lot of cross promotion. Not only did we push it on YouTube and social and Twitter and things, but we also had it on their website. It was promoted out to their accounts. They gave some of their top accounts copies of the book. She did some in-person events at uh, Fleet Feet and some cool things that way. We also were engaging with readers on these social platforms. It seems so um, small now, but at the time, again, this was very revolutionary. So one of our authors, Marcus Seiki, his book that was coming out, the characters in the book would play this game called Ready Go. And it was a, a hypothetical weird question that they, it was just a bar game they would play you know like if you had a million dollars what would you do ready go and so we started playing that on twitter a lot so he started asking ready go questions and he would give a, he would retweet some of them he would give away prizes he would there was some prize for someone who participated the most so these kinds of like twitter contests again seems so silly now but we're very you know cutting edge at the time. And the common thing that I saw was that social media is a connector and it's a way to build community. And so now it's morphed into, it's a media company, right? Like it's morphed into something 
completely different with ads, with data, with all these things, but ultimately it's about connecting people and creating a community. So even though there's lots of things to do with Facebook ads and data-driven marketing and all these things, we really focus on that community aspect and cultivating a community of readers. And has that been like your focus since you've done the first publishing of that one book, like the community aspect, or what have you been, been doing since 2009? So that's one of our core values. Community is a core value, as well as long-term readership. So all of our authors have, at the time, Jamie was, it was her first book, but since then she's published six, maybe more, seven, and has launched her own publishing company. Um, Marcus has published over a dozen. So like we were, our goal was to work with authors over the long term. We wanted to really grow their careers book after book after book. And so you can't do that with these like one quick hit techniques like these like e-blast techniques or these um like certain media blitz techniques it's just there's no longevity to it and so we always again early on we were focusing on email marketing our clients all had mailchimp accounts when no one knew what mailchimp was and you know so they all have very vibrant media email lists because they've been growing over the course of yikes 11 years um and so that initial year, we went from having one client, that first client, Jamie, to 30 clients because word quickly spread that we were doing these things that the publisher just wasn't doing and just wasn't equipped. How did you manage that having one to 30? Did you expand your team quickly? What did you do? Um, I did not handle it well, Jeremy. <laughs> I laugh and I'm mortified when I think about some of the things that I did early on. Um, I did hire my first assistant having never hired anybody, never managed anybody, never worked with anybody, like nothing. Um, I hired my first assistant, I think must've been the fall of that year. So first hire within the first year and got our office space. And I had no project management software. I had no timekeeping app. I had, I was keeping track of my time on a piece of paper. I had a whiteboard that I had like the week's to do's and I would erase it every time i finished it so there's like no record pre slack it was pre pre i don't <laughs> no. things were out there like base camp was out there like things were out there but i just didn't i learned myself i didn't necessarily like go to some incubator and find out how to be an entrepreneur i had never managed anybody i never i have never had a real job this has been my job um i was a freelance writer before this and i worked like at starbucks in college you know that's about it so I think that I learned a lot along the way. And so I, my first assistant would probably tell you I was the worst manager ever and she would be right. And from there, uh, I hired, we had interns, we had assistants, we had eventually other publicists. And so now we have a team of two full-time employees and about five contractors. And are they still doing the same kind of, how many books are you dealing with now? Books? Um, we have about, we average, I'm looking at our calendar, also on a whiteboard, uh, we have an average of five to six books a month. Wow. Yeah. For you. So, I mean, now it's interesting. Um, like, so what are some of the struggles, I guess, you've been having, like, to get to that couple person team, like, just management of time, like, how have you learned how to manage people within the last 11 years? I read a lot of books, surprisingly. Um, I learned how to manage through trial and error, 
through talking with people like Deborah, who is a guest on your show and talking with, other, yeah, talking with other people, talking with my wife who's managed, who's a corporate person. So she's like a senior VP. I don't, I don't know what level she's at now, but like she's managed people her entire career and talking to her about what's worked, what's hasn't. I think ultimately the thing that I had going for me all along was that I do have a high EQ. I, I identify as an empath. I'm very, I take people's energy. I feel what they're feeling. And rather than fighting and bucking against that, I think I needed to embrace it. So understanding what people are feeling and, and treating them differently. You know, our team is very diverse in terms of age, in terms of background, in terms of education. Our team is very diverse. And so knowing that the, you know, 24 year old uh, who this is her first job, may be motivated and interested in different things than the 60 plus year old who, you know, has been in the workforce and had, has had many jobs and, um, you know, has been with me lo way longer. And so understanding that you can't just have motivate people and train people on the same way, you really have to learn about them and let them do most of the talking, listen, and, and adjust there. I think that I had to let go of my ego a lot. Like I had this, I have an ego about I'm the boss. I know what's best. I know how to do this. Most CEOs and entrepreneurs have that because we wouldn't be in this business if we didn't. Um, and so I think it was a lot about letting go of my ego of saying, you know, their ideas are just as valid. The way they learn is just as valid, even if it's completely not how you learn. So with, for example, these are like really little things, but I'm way more text-based. So I love Asana, which is our project management software. Like I love just seeing a list of things. Haley, our um, digital marketer, is more visual. So, and our we also use Airtable, which has a Kanban board, which she loves. And now that Asana can have boards, she loves that way more. And so I think understanding when I finally learned that it wasn't my way or the highway, and that my way isn't always best, then I started not only getting better results for my existing team, but attracting better team members. And how, how have you had time then to also do other things besides your PR company? Like, as you said, you're author of your own book and you're starting boutique stock photography. How do you make time for all this? So with Capability has been my primary company for the past, like I would say 10 years, basically, maybe more. Um, time is interesting. So I actually don't feel that time, having enough time is the problem. I think it's prioritizing. We are really bad at prioritizing things. We're really distracted. We'll always go the path of least resistance. So it is so much easier to sit and watch TikTok videos or binge Netflix than it is to go on a run or <laughs> write a book or whatever that may be. So I actually think it's not about time, it's about training yourself to go the path, training yourself to get in the habit of being productive and prioritizing what's most important to you. So a good example is my book, which I wrote in the summer of 2015. I sold that book at a bar on a cocktail napkin, definitely overselling how much I had already written of this book. And when she said, I want it in our fall catalog. I need a clean draft by September 1st. And it was July 1st. I said, yes, shook her hand and just did it. 
So I decided, okay, I need to prioritize writing this book. Like, cause I've just been, you know, tinkering with it and um, not really taking it seriously. But I also don't want to deprioritize my family. I don't want to just say here, wife, take our, at the time, one-year-old, goodbye, have him. Um, I didn't want to prioritize, I, I wanted to prioritize my family and I needed to prioritize writing this book. And I also had a company to run. So every single, so I broke down my plan, my word count that I needed to reach every day, every single day in order to stay on track. And I, during the week I would write at night. She graciously put him to bed every night and I wrote. And then on the weekends, thankfully he took two naps at the time. So I would try to get my word count during nap one. And if I didn't, I would have to work during nap two. If I got my word count done, then I got to have a workout during nap two. <laughs> um, so with that, other things suffered. Like I wasn't working out, which is important to me. Um, I was sleeping decently, but not great. And I you know, wasn't maybe helping around the house as much. So things suffered, but you can do that for a short amount of time in order to prioritize getting this done. And I got it done and we made our deadline and it came out in 2016. So now with the, with the current pandemic, um, we're recording this July 2nd. And, you know, that's been another reprioritization. So here we are, school closes, like he's five now. I'm counting on him being at school all day. And the school closes, my wife is now home with me and I somehow have to be his full-time parent, teacher, run a business and not go crazy. So what we do is we prioritize. So right now, I, fortunately I've shifted for K publicity. I'm the CEO role. I'm out of the day-to-day -day operations. So my priority is my team. So it's not my clients necessarily because my team members can talk to the clients. My priority is talking to the team and making sure they feel supported. So I have very minimal meetings. It's mostly with my team members to make sure projects are moving forward and make sure things are staying on track, as well as developing some of these high level strategies and shifts we're currently making in our business, um, which we can get into. And then with that, once I stripped away all of that, that only takes a few hours, an hour or two a day. And so, you know, my kid goes to bed at 7.30. Like I have time to finally launch a new business. <laughs> and so, <laughs> With, um, with Bouquet Stock Photography, it's a new business um, that is aimed at creating representative and stock photography. Basically, if you look at Shutterstock, iStock Photos, any of those, it's quite white and quite millennial and quite thin. And so we are aiming to have a curated library of stock photos that have plenty people of color, queer folks, non-binary folks, people of different sizes, different ages. Like if you, it's really interesting when you start looking through photos, it's either 20 somethings or gray haired people. There's no one in their forties. There's no photos that I can find of, of boardrooms or workplace where it's just women, let alone women of color. So we're trying to fill this gap. And so the benefit of doing this during a pandemic is that you have a lot of photographers who have a lot of time and a lot of files. So we're currently compiling all the photos. We are working with three, two or three photographers, as well as my business partner and creative director, who is also a photographer, as well as he has many, he has multiple businesses as well. And we are going to create this stock photography website. 
and marketplace. So that again can be, I can build a website at night. It doesn't take a lot of effort. It'll be interesting though to see once we launch it, how much of my time is with Kate Publicity, how much of my time is with Bouquet Stock Photography, as well as I do uh, business coaching and consulting. Well, so tell me, you brought up, uh, obviously we're talking today because of COVID-19, it's July 2nd right now. And this is kind of giving me a rundown of how it's impacted um, the, the PR company. And then obviously it makes sense to launch now um, Bouquet Stock Photography. Just kind of talk me through some of the things that have happened. Right, so we're lucky in a couple of ways. We, our company has been virtual for the past three years. So we didn't have to deal with shutting down the office, putting in different sim systems. We had that covered. The difference is, is that now I have a lot of people at my house that I didn't have before. So it's more about me, less about my, the, the employees seem to be doing an okay, they seem to be having a fine time. And so that was a shift. I think the biggest struggle, I think we're all struggling with is the uncertainty. So with publicity, when we're looking at a campaign, we're talk, we start six months out. So for us to try to plan and do things six months out is really tricky. Uh, we typically schedule book tours and event, in-person events. We submit to book festivals and conferences. And at, in March and April, we were still thinking like, Ugh, it'll be all done by August. We got it, it's fine. It's not gonna be done. It's not gonna be done this year. I don't know when the, last, the next time we're gonna be able to gather in masses. And so, we, it's, I think that's been the challenge is just the lack of ability to anticipate. So what we decided to do in mid-April was we are going to assume that the world is not opening up and we're going to proceed with that. And best case scenario, the world opens up and we start booking some events and doing some in-person stuff. Worst case scenario, we have virtual events scheduled and by then everyone is well-versed in every webinar platform and Zoom and whatnot. So I think that was the challenge, but right now we're still booking multiple events. They're just online instead of in person. We're still sending review copies to media. We're just doing more e-copies than print copies. The, there was some challenges with supply chain in the beginning of March where warehouses were closing and books were stuck in transit and a lot of paper and a lot of books are printed in China and that was a problem. Um, but a lot of that seems to be figured out right now. Although again, we may have more problems later. So I think that we were equipped because we have been doing, I've been doing online events since 2012. So this is not new to me. Um, it's just now we're doing it a lot more. Are you seeing more people going to virtual events and even in-person in events or what's like been the numbers like for people? Well, we can't do in-person events, right? No, like but versus the way you had in the past. Oh, so that's interesting. We, it definitely varies. We definitely have a bigger attendance because it's national. So before, if you do a book event in Chicago, only people in Chicago, maybe parts of Indiana, maybe Wisconsin would come. But with, a, with an online event, anyone in the world can come. So we see a lot greater attendance. Book sales, however, vary. So it's a harder sell for books because part of the the way that people buy books at events is because they want that moment with the author. They want to shake the author's hand, get the signature, have that little private moment to talk with them. And that doesn't happen online. You're already talking with them. And so that's a little bit of a challenge, but we have seen what we've been doing is trying to encourage people to buy the book. So for example, 
we have a launch event next weekend that has a it has three authors and anyone who buys a book bundle meaning buys all three of their books is going to get this little gift pack so one of our so our author is lydia kang her book is opium and absinthe it's a historical and um there's going to be a winner who receive who any someone who buys the book bundle is going to receive these little absinthe uh, spoons and absinthe glasses. So like a little, those little things that to incentivize buying, not just one book, but three books. And has that been working? And are, are, are people not picking up sales with those little incentives? Yeah, so I think what we're seeing is that the book sales are stagnant. So if you did an in-person event, let's say that had 40 people, you'd probably sell 15 to 20 books if it was like your hometown crowd. And so now we're having events with, 100 people and we're still selling 15 to 20 books. So in my mind, I'd rather, as long as book sales stay the same, I'd rather have more people there because chances are that they're gonna buy the book later. Like if they're still seeing the author on social media or they get the author's newsletter, they may just buy it when they're ready to read it. Are you seeing now more authors like becoming, like becoming authors now because of COVID-19? They have time at home. They're maybe creating more opportunity to write things? Or is that not impacting Maybe. you? I'm curious to see how many pandemic books we have <laughs> in like six months. Um, I'm not sure. It's too soon to tell because the number of books that are being published has slowed down. But a lot of that, again, is supply chain issues and people wanting to wait and see what happens. So we have like a really big book that was supposed to come out in April that moved to August. Now I kind of feel like it could have come out in April and it would have been the same thing. But it's hard to say what's going to be coming out and how much people are producing. Our authors aren't necessarily producing more books because they're busier than ever. So it's hard. It'll be interesting to see when maybe in like November and December, we get a newsletter that says all the book deals that are happening. It'll be interesting to see if those there's more deals happening because people have been writing more books. And are you already, are you already seeing people writing books about the pandemic or have started? Or have you heard about that? I have been told some of our authors have pandemic books. One of our, so Lydia Kang, who I mentioned earlier, is also a nonfiction author. She wrote Quackery. I'm going to butcher the subtitle, but it's like weird medical practices throughout history. And she had already, she had just sold a book about pandemics when this has all started happening. So, and I saw one or two other thrillers and YA books that have to do with pandemics but these are not going to be published for another year. We did see also in the beginning, a lot of publishers hurry up and do coronavirus books. So one of our publisher clients start published a book called Coronavirus by taking copy off of the CDC's website and using, I believe they use AI to like make it into a book. But if you look at the CDC's website, it's so confusing. And so they basically took everything that's in the public domain and bundled it into a, into a comprehensive guide. So we did see like a lot of publishers doing hurry up rush jobs of coronavirus books. So um, that's interesting. If uh, I guess it's interesting your, your business has like some ways been stabilizes in different forms, but if you can go back to January, even like your every business has been changing, like would you change anything if you knew what was coming back in January? That's a good question. I would have maybe moved, if anyone would have listened to me, I would have moved some of our clients' books if possible. 
moved their pub dates, maybe I would have asked them to hurry up and like ship me a bunch of, a bunch of books. Like we had trouble getting some of our March books in-house. But no, I don't know. I think that it's, I don't think I would change anything. No. Because this you, is going to be the new normal. I, I think right. that a lot of this is going to be the new normal. So to change, I, I, maybe I would have planned for it a little bit differently. But other than that, I think we, we the, one of the things that I, the reason clients come to us is we're re, we adapt and pivot really fast. And so publisher, like the big five publishers are like the Titanic. Like they're trying to turn around. So we've been telling them, this is lasting. Let's go virtual. They're still hedging their bets. We've been saying, could you please liberate all the books from your warehouse so we can get them? They're like, oh, it's fine. Our warehouse is open and functioning. And then like two weeks later, someone gets Corona and then the whole warehouse shuts down. So I think that because we're small and because we tend to stay up on what's happening in the world, especially in our industry, we're able to pivot really quickly. And do you think pivoting will be like your big competitive advantage going forward? Or what are some other important things that you think your business will need in this new world or this new normal? So our competitive advantage has always been the fact that we don't do things the way they've always been done. That's always how it's been. So if publishing is focusing on one thing, we're going to focus on something else. Maybe we align, but oftentimes we don't. And so that's just going to continue. So when Everyone's like, let's do these virtual events while well, we already been doing them. Let's see how we can do them differently and better and bigger and how we can make them more interesting versus a regular old webinar. When we're thinking about ways to interact with and engage with bookstores, you know, rather than doing something fun with curbside deliver, curbside pickup or whatever it may be. So I think that that's always been our competitive advantage of just not settling for the way things have always been done and trying to do things differently. It makes sense. So I guess I'm, it's kind of a crazy world in the last couple of months. Um, but so one of the things that I've been kind of trying to learn about is on top of COVID-19, America is experiencing trying to figure out how to kind of comprehend racism. It's really the center of stage of discussion. And um, I'm wondering how is it how has it impacted you? It sounds like you're already creating a company kind of around it. Kind of please explain a little bit how it's impacted you a little bit. Yeah. So um, I will, for those of you who can't see me, I'm a white person. So all of this is coming from that point of view and that privilege. So I've had a lot of learning to do. I have been, like many, reading, taking trainings, talking to people, and trying to learn and listen as much as I can. And to actively work to be anti-racist versus not not racist or whatever that whatever the opposite of that is and so i think that we have always had a mission of diversity in in the sense of we like having different kinds of books because books are more interesting with different points of view i have we have plenty of cis white male authors who write really really great books but it would be boring if that's all we represented it would be very similar it'd be very homogeneous and it wouldn't be interesting. So we have always had, we've always represented lots of queer authors, lots of authors of color, uh, different with different, again, abilities, backgrounds, whatever that may be. So I thought naively, and I'm, these are clumsy conversations, so I wanna preface this before I get any angry troll, and that I thought we were good 
honestly. I was like, we got this. Like we have employees of color. We have like, you know, one of our employees is Puerto Rican. My lawyer's black. Like I'm queer. Like we're all good. We're good. Um, our, our lineup of authors is good. Like I just thought we were fine. But fine isn't like enough. And so I think that's been my reckoning with all of this is that why is this stuff still happening? And what I have failed to dismantle or at least aid in dismantling is the systemic issues. I am not sure, I can't speak on like defunding police departments and mental health challenges. Like that's not my, that's not my world. I can learn about it, but I'm not an expert. But what I do have some expertise and expertise in is publishing. And I do know for a fact that there is systemic racism in publishing. The way that people get hired into publishing is broken. Who can work for publishers is messed up and lends itself to upper class white people. The way that books are then published and the cycle of because they are published in a certain way, they don't sell as many, then there's a stigma that books by black authors don't sell as well. So they continue to get poor advances and then the authors can't promote it. Like it's this whole cycle. So that's what we've been focusing on trying to dismantle. There's like this urgent thing of, you know, black men are getting murdered and women are getting murdered and that's not okay. So that's like the most urgent thing. But also when, let's say all the police departments are defunded, let's say there's more equity for black individuals and black individuals start to feel safe. Okay, they're safe, that's like step one. Let's see how they can thrive. And so because we have a foot in the publishing, we have a foot in the publishing hold and we also have the attention of media, we are uniquely poised to help advocate and lift up writers, writers of color and just frankly any underrepresented group. So, but we, what we don't want to do, and I'm sure we've all seen this, is be super reactionary and be like tacking on something without much thought. So a colleague of mine who I, not a colleague, like someone I know in the publishing world who is very well-intentioned, I'm sure, just like announced that he's doing some scholarship or some award for a writer of color that he's just like doing really fast and just like threw it out there. And that doesn't speak to me. Like it doesn't necessarily, I'm like, oh, this is like, let's just put a bandaid on this and see like, check this box of like, see, I'm woke and check. Um, and so that doesn't sit well with me. What I wanna do is actually weave it into everything that we do. So how can we, how can we weave in more equity for underrepresented voices, primarily writers of color? How can we weave that in to every aspect of our business model? And when I say equity, so equality, I'm sure we've all heard this, but for those, for those of you who haven't, you can all learn to hear it again. Equality is, which is what we have been doing, is giving everyone the same, treating everyone the same. So saying like, we're not gonna gouge you on prices because you're a corporation. We're not gonna charge you, like do lesser service because you can't afford us. Everyone gets equal services. Everyone pays the same thing. And I thought, again, that that was fine. It's not. Because if everyone's equal, but some of us have a, are more ahead in the starting lane, then the people who have started further behind for no fault of their own are always going to be behind. Equity is pushing those people to the front so they can have a fair shot like all of us. So we've been working on some initiatives that we can give people who give people the same services. We give all our other clients who can't afford it 
even if those people can't, even if those authors cannot afford it. Because again, if you're a writer of color, there's a spreadsheet out there, you just Google publishing paid me, I think it's hashtag publishing paid me, where thousands of writers are putting their race, what their book is about, what category is, what publisher it is, and what they were paid. And there's key patterns that writers of color are not getting paid as much as their white counterparts. There was a, a note from Roxane Gay, who wrote Bad Feminist and Hungry and some other things, um, who is a black female author. And she did not get paid as big of an advance as the person, as one of the people who had asked her to blurb her book. So Roxanne's platform was big enough that this author wanted her blurb, and yet this author, this white author got paid more. So these are the things that we're being challenged with is, okay, if they are not getting paid more, or getting paid the same, I should say, then they may not be able to afford, our services are not cheap, they're not able to afford us, therefore their books don't get the promotional push they deserve, therefore they don't sell as well, therefore they're proving that writers of color don't sell as many books, therefore publishers don't give big advances, and the cycle continues. So that's been our primary focus, is how can we give the same amount of services and make those services more accessible to the people who may not be able to afford them. That's a really wonderful perspective. Um, seems like you're doing great work on it. So uh, hopefully everyone can learn from you. I'm sure they, they are learning from you. So congratulations to you. Oh, it's um, a learning experience for us all. I think that yeah. it, I have been, let's say, called in on a lot of things by, you know, the, the Black people in my community for things that I said that were wrong or things that I stayed silent on. Um, this is uncomfortable. It should be uncomfortable. Like, if you're making real change, like, my, my comfort should not be the primary concern. And so I think a lot of white, if you want to be a true ally, then we need to be speaking up and we need to be using our voices and using our privilege for good. And I think the more you can, just like my, the person who did the scholarship was well-intentioned, and I don't want to disparage that, we need to think about like, how can it just not be a thing? Like, how can we just, you know, have, watch more shows that have black actors or black writers, because it's a different point of view. How can we read more black authors? How can we, it's, it should just be a part of us. It should just be ingrained. How can you shop black businesses? You know, if, if I have two bookstores that are relatively close, but one is owned by a black, it has a black owner, maybe I go to that one instead. And so I think it's just being cognizant of making this part of our routine and part of our fiber versus just like slapping band-aids left and right. Right. So with everything going on in the world um, and society and for yourself and for your family, um, what advice do you want, like would you give to yourself to like how you're going to keep moving forward in this craziness of going on and to also to other business owners, like what would you tell them? I think we need to stop mourning what we could have had. Like I'm very, I've always said cry for a day, mourn that, cry for a day, but then it's time to move on. And so in the beginning of this, we had a lot, I had a lot of very emotional conversations with our clients who were mourning the loss of their big, huge book launch party, their 10 city book tour, their big media appearances that were canceled because our entire news cycle was consumed by COVID. I get it, it sucks. It's hard, take, take a day, but then we have to move on. 
And so I think the more that we can stop living in what could have been, and the more we can just focus on the future, one step at a time, the happier and the more fulfilled we'll all be. So I talk to, I, I do a lot of business coaching. And I talk to, a, I'm working currently with several business owners that were directly impacted by COVID. And, you know, people who have brick and mortars, a photographer who couldn't shoot for a long time. And a lot of it was just mourning this idea of like, I like doing things in person, or I, if only this could have happened. But the quicker we can pivot and make a new plan, we can say like, this was surprising. I talk, my son has been through a lot of occupational therapy, so I talk like the OT sometimes to our clients. Part of this idea is that was a surprise. Let's make a new plan. So yep, COVID, pandemic, bad surprise, but let's make a new plan and let's see where we can go from here as opposed to dwelling in what could have been. I think that's uh, spot on. So I uh, really appreciate your time. It was really fascinating to talk to you, with you on Restarting America. And uh, I've learned a lot and I hope, hopefully know a lot more people will learn too. So thank, thank you, you, Jeremy. It was a pleasure chatting. Talk to you soon.